Hi, my name is Jesse Cannon, and I've devoted my life to trying to go deep and figure out what goes into making great records. I've produced over 1,000 albums, written two books, and recorded hundreds of podcasts pursuing the hidden secrets of how great music gets to the world's ears. Now I'm proud to present to you Atlantic Records' Inside the Album podcast, where we get to go deeper on how some of Atlantic's artists have made the amazing songs in their catalog. We will hear firsthand from the artists and the team behind them that helped craft this amazing music and get to know the little secrets that go into making an amazing album. On this episode, we're going to go deep on Brett Cobb's new record, Providence Canyon. Brett Cobb is one of the country's most honest storytellers. And while it's said often, he's a one-of-a-kind guy, and you'll hear everyone throughout this podcast reiterate that. When you enter the room with so many singers who've gotten as far as he has, you're taken with the fact that they've developed a skill set to become really likable so that people take to them and want to help them. Brent is not that. He's a person who seems only capable of being who he is and staying true to himself, and thankfully that person is really likable, interesting, and a hell of a nice guy. Throughout this episode, you're going to hear me laugh and be really engaged with the stories he tells. To give you some background on him, Brent burst onto the scene with his 2006 debut, No Place Left to Leave. Around that time, he made his way over to Music Row in Nashville, writing songs for Miranda Lambert, Kenny Chesney, Luke Bryant, Little Big Town, and tons of others. He became a part of his cousin Dave Cobb's Low Country Sound label, and then released his sophomore record, Shine on a Rainy Day, to much acclaim. This spring, Atlantic Records released his newest record, Providence Canyon, which continues his masterful storytelling with a record full of strong grooves and country songs that are unique in their rocking character. But before we get too far, let's let some of the people closest to him tell the story, starting with Brent himself. Man, that's a long story. It all started with the, you know, my family always played music, and uh, you know, music was always considered a trade, just as practical as going to school for heating and air or something, which my dad did do. But he also happened to part of our income was him playing on the weekends. You know, he'd, he'd open shows. There was this place called the Silver Moon in Buena Vista, Georgia, and he'd open shows anytime they had like George Jones came to town or Doug Stone or Chubby Checker. You know, they he'd open the shows. So it's just always kind of been a part of my life. I always knew that I may pursue it someday. It was always supported. Well, then I had a great aunt that passed away. I had to be a pallbearer in her funeral, Aunt Christine, which happened to be Dave's grandmother. And Dave and I didn't know one another until her funeral. And when he showed up, we're all skeptically going, oh, big old L.A. record producer, you know, because like we're all musical and had never heard of this cousin that is a producer. And so I, I remember standing around this terrible after the funeral and me being the youngest one out there, you know, just like, so you're record producer, huh? <laughs> what you produced? <laughs> <laughs> That's always the best. And uh, Dave was like, oh, he's so he was so kind and humble about it. It was just like, oh, uh, this guy, Shooter Jennings, put the O back in country. And I was floored when he said that. It was like, oh. Well, holy shit, and I guess you are a real record producer. I didn't say that, but that's what I was thinking. And um was shameless enough to give him a little six-song acoustic demo that my mama's brother, my Uncle Dave, uh, another David in the family, had produced, sort of. You know, he lent me his studio, and I gave Dave that. And uh, two days later, I had just gotten off work. I was working for a tree service crew, and the phone rings, the house phone. I didn't have a cell phone at the time. Matter of fact, I had just gotten super stoned with my buddy, who my co-worker. Phone rings, I answer, and it's Dave. He goes, hey, Brent, this is your cousin Dave we met, you know, a couple days ago at Grandma's funeral. So I, I'm sitting here with Shooter Jennings, and uh, we'd listen to the demo, and we want to fly you out to L.A. and make a record. And I'm like, my buddy's sitting over at, at my, my folks' kitchen table, and we're, I'm just like, <laughs> man. <laughs> yeah, that's all the ball together. Oh, man. And, uh, that's really where it all began, like the professional journey began in right there. That's at the end of 05, and uh, I started going to L.A. back and forth for about a year and a half. We recorded the first record, uh, No Place Left to Leave, and then I moved to L.A. for about six months. It was a lot different. In six months, there was an earthquake in a drive-by shooting where I lived. I, a dude tried to carjack me. And it only rained one time. And so I kind of decided that maybe L.A. wasn't for me. And uh, in the meantime, I had, because of that record, I was playing it with a local band, Mile Marker 5, and we had opened some shows for Luke Bryan, who happens to be from uh, Leesburg, Georgia, which is about 30 minutes south of where I'm from. And uh, he got a hold of that old record, and he really liked it. And he was gracious enough and kind enough. He invited me to come to Nashville. And I went and wrote with him for a week. 
he took me around to a bunch of different people, introduced me to a lot of people, and kind of led to me making the decision to move to Nashville in March of 08. I was there for a year working at Walgreens and had met some publishers, called an old publisher, a plugger at a publishing company, Carnival, and I was like, man, you know I can write songs? Like, well, when are we going to do the deal? <laughs> and he was like, well, God, I hadn't heard from you in a year. And uh, so then I went in, and for a few months after that, I got a publishing deal, and I started writing on Music Row, which was sort of a dream of mine always. Y'all might like Willie Nelson and Roger Miller and Chris Christopherson and all those, you know, everybody's normal, usual suspects as heroes. They all did that that, that thing, and I, I, I just thought it would be really neat to be a part of that history of music row songwriting and so i did that i toured for a while i made an ep in 2012 toured on it the best i could for a few years my wife and i my wife got pregnant i had I, I didn't get pregnant but i had i had a little something to do with it <laughs> and uh i had never been a dad before so I, I stopped touring and just focused on songwriting again in the meantime dave had still been in la and he had just moved to nashville i don't know probably a year or two before my wife became pregnant you know, we've been trying to get back together ever since. He got ready to do that Southern Family album compilation or a concept album compilation of artists, and he called me up, and he said, "Man, I'm putting together this Southern Fa Southern Family concept album. Thought it'd only be appropriate for me to have my little bitch ass cousin be a part of it." <laughs> Wrote a song for Southern Family, and that was the first time Dave and I had worked on something of mine. We had done a little work with other artists. I'd written with other artists that he had been working with, but it was the first time we had worked together since the 0506 album, and it just felt like coming home. So when we were in the studio, we both were just like, man, we got to do a whole record, you know? And it was before Dave had gotten extremely busy. Uh, he was not quite the superstar that he is now. He's just like, you know, wore thin now. And so we had time to get in. We busted that Shine On Record album out in about a week. Yeah, he he was just working on this imprint, Low Country Sound. One thing led to another, and here we are today. And here's Dave Cobb to tell his side of the story. Yeah, I, I'd actually met him, you know, maybe 10 years ago. Well, I guess it's been more than that. About 12 years ago at my uh, grandmother's funeral, and I flew back. I was living in California. Flew back home to Georgia, and all my cousins are right. All of them play, <clears throat> and they came and gave me a demo, and I kind of discarded it because everybody I know in my family plays, and I didn't think twice about it. My wife made me listen to it in the car on the way back to the airport, and it, he floored me at 17. He was just a monster rider, just unbelievable rider. And so uh, I flew him out to L.A. and did a couple songs with, Kevin yeah, Shooter Jennings and Pat through all these years. He moved to Nashville, then I moved here, and we talked about working together again, and it took a damn long time to do it. We finally did, and made the, the previous record that Brent spit out, uh, Shine on Rainy Day, and loved that so much. We went crazy back, and there's another one. I then turned to Brent's manager, a veteran of the music business, Don Van Cleve, to find out how they hooked up. I was at a dinner in Nashville hosted by Fender. And we were at a big round table, and there was a various and sundry outlaws at the table, and one of them was Dave Cobb, uh, the producer, who's a good buddy of mine. And, you know, I don't drink anymore, so they did. They all did. There was some conversation about getting home and Ubers and all this, and I, I just said, Dave, just hop in the car, man. You know, you're on the way to my house. So he hopped in the car, and, like, we got a mile away, and he goes, would you manage anybody else? And I, I had just come out of... Four and a half years with Soundgarden and Chris Cornell. So I was not exactly looking for another client. I just I just knew that if I was going to get another client, I had to like love them, and I wanted them from ground zero uh, because I like to artist development is kind of my history. And, you know, the whole time I've been in the record business, Dave started playing this this record for me and goes, "This is my cousin," and you know, he's like the redneck Paul Simon. <laughs> That's a great description. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And it was raining, and we were driving to his house, and I passed his house, and I go, you're not getting out of the car until I hear the whole record. And I just loved it. I said, yeah, I'll, I would do this. He goes, well, I think you're too late. He said, I think uh, he's probably going to go to red light. You know, he's been talking to those guys for a month. And I go, okay, great. Here I am a day late and a dollar short yet again. Because, you know, it's all timing in the record business about when you, like, come across paths of somebody you might work with. So, sure enough, next day he picked red light. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Damn it. And then Atlantic 
Greg Nadell, my buddy here, shared the record with me. And I'm like, dude, why are you giving me this record? He already picked somebody else. And, oh, this is going to kill me. And I listened to it all weekend. And I'm like, oh, man, this is such a good record. I'm just going to. So a couple of days more went by and, and you know, driving home. And I get a call from, you know, Corin Capshaw, who runs Red Light. And he goes, hey, I hear you like Brent Cobb. And I'm like, yeah, I love it. I said, I hadn't met him yet, but I love it. He goes, how would you like to do it with me? And I'm like, I would love that, but let me meet him because I'm not going to do assholes. So I'm like, I'll do, I'll do that. Uh, I'll go meet with him. So the next day I met with Brent and we hit it off, figured out we, you know, grew up 90 miles from each other and had a lot of the same passions about music and early music. And, you know, it all roots for us Georgia boys at all root. You know, I grew up in the Capricorn era of any given day, you're going to see Greg Allman or you're going to see Marshall Tucker or you're going to see some of these great bands. When I was in high school, it uh, really got me in the music business. And we, I started telling him that story of how far back, you know, uh, uh, my roots were in Georgia music. And, you know, we just hit it off. So by the end of that day, I met back up and, and shook Korn's hand and we agreed to do it. And it was literally starting this from zero and figuring out, you know, how to go. The funny thing is everybody has a great story about how they came to work with Brent. Here's Mike Harris, his guitarist, talking about how they came to work together. Dude, I I had done my time, like, touring in bands, like, making records, and, like, band broke up, and I took a job working for my buddy's company, and we were, like, promoting concerts and kind of specializing in, like, up-and-coming, like, never-heard-of talent. And it was, like, I don't know, like, March of 16. And a buddy of mine was like, yo, Dave Cobb's cousin just put out this song called Down Home. It's on this compilation record. It's so up your alley. I probably listened to that song, like, six times that day. And, and I immediately hit up his agent. It's like, hey, can I book Brent on a run of shows? And I put him on a run of shows from the southeast up you know through the midwest and we met those first three shows and uh nicole atkins was playing on those shows too nicole's my old buddy nicole's there and we're all hanging and i happen to be playing nicole's guitar and brent he called me up like the next day i was like hey man can you can you come out and play so that was like we started playing together probably about four months before that record came out and we did a lot of duo stuff to begin with before we started getting into the full band stuff but the full band stuff's more fun one of the things about Brent that becomes so obvious the second you start talking to him and you listen to his music is he's a great storyteller. While I was doing research for this podcast, I watched an amazing story about a song on his last record about a moonshine house. So I talked to him about where that storytelling ability came from. Man, my dad can tell the hell out of a story. He, and I, I would get him growing up to tell the same stories every day. You know, every time we'd be hanging out around a fire and there'd be a new buddy of mine or something, I'd be like, man, tell the one about, you know, cornbread breaking the sign in half and, like, tell the damn story. They were at the creek one time, Slaughter Creek, which is the name of my dad's band, which is the creek that we all grew up on. He and his buddy Cornbread, they called him. <laughs> he, uh, they're hanging out and this car rides by and they wave at the car on Seminole Road. And when they wave at them, these guys shoot them a bird. And they're like, what the hell, man? They throw their hands up, so this car stops and turns around and comes down there, and they think it's only a couple of them in the car. Well, it's six guys that get out of the car. Well, my daddy's going, oh, shit, man, what are we going to do? You know what he's thinking. Cornbread just so happens to grab a hold of this sign that is rotted in the middle of the sign. It's old wooden sign, and it breaks off in his hand, and he just starts patting it in his hand like he's a badass, you know, and all these guys are like, oh, shit, we're going to take <laughs> off. When they leave, Daddy goes, man, how the hell did you do that? He said, man, I don't know. It just broke off, and I went with it. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So, That's good. I grew up around storytelling, and, you know, a lot of Southerners tell good stories. It's something about the rhythm of the way they talk down there, the way we talk. That particular song, uh, Down in the Gully, my daddy had called me one day, and he was telling me about my Uncle Bubba being accused of having a moonshine still because of this old pump house on, you know, the backside of the property. And it just, yeah, it was just like, oh, damn, you know, what if it would have been a moonshine still, you know, because it sure could have been. <laughs> Mike Harris talks about Brent's storytelling like this. Willie, Willie Nelson said, you can't make a record if you ain't got something to say. But it's so true, and Brent makes great records because he has a lot to say. There's there's a great, like, 
I, I think about intersecting lines of uh, different qualities and people and like having a, a paramount point of an intersection between like honesty and truth as well as just having a wellspring of things to draw from like Brent is off the charts with that as a writer which is yeah it's just cool to be around so now that we've explored who Brent is and what makes him make the music he makes what did he want to do with the record Providence Canyon Don's going to tell us a story about how somehow Dodge Trucks helped shape this record Brent had this the first record shine on rainy day the record deal the agent the management company the publicist we're all in place, so I'm the last guy to walk in the room, which is very refreshing because usually I'm the first guy there, and I'm trying to beg everybody else into doing it. So I went out with Brent a lot. We went to a lot of shows. Because of money, we would go out and tour as a duet, uh, not with me, but I'd have him and his guitar player out and, you know, opening for Anderson East and, you know, a bunch of cool friends and stuff. And, and then we slowly ramped up to having the band out there uh, doing a lot of touring and just getting in front of other people's audiences and one thing i noticed in the set uh was that the tempo of all the first record was on the down you know it was pretty low energy but amazing right it was a fireplace candle glass of wine kind of record and i felt like you know brent you gotta kick you gotta kick this next record up a notch creatively because you've already got kind of a kind of a a chill set and he agreed and he felt like he had those songs and was writing those songs so somewhere in there i guess it was in may of 2017 uh we had been talking to ram trucks about an association because dave and chris stapleton and all buddies of brent's had had deals with ram so hey why not let's go talk to them and they were just great and they're like we need you to write us a song from scratch that we won't own it we won't run commercials against it but here's kind of the principles of what we're trying to do here's a brief i said brent you gotta write a song for this and then we're gonna get this 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 and this right kind of a business angle and you know he he, a lot of artists are like oh my god you know he's okay next day next day i wrote a song and i didn't really realize how unbelievably fast brent cobb can fast he can write uh and get it right but he stayed up all night in a hotel room in denver he was out there with Margot price and jamie johnson as first of three and he wrote this song called um he wrote this song called ain't a road too long and it's all about family, job, loyalty, all the things that Ram had kind of wanted him to talk about. But he took it and made it be just this most amazing song. And it was super up-tempo, very back, again, Southern rock that we all loved, but not Southern rock as a lot of people are doing it now. Kind of a Brent Cobb stamp on the Southern rock thing, which was great. And it was swamp music and Tony Joe White-ish. And, you know, it really represented South Georgia to me. You know, it's like, okay, I hear this because this is what I grew up on. That song was just amazing and everybody was floored by it. And it really helped him get in the creative mindset for, okay, this is the first song in my new album cycle. Uh, Even though I haven't recorded the new album yet, this is like what I'm going for. Plus, he wanted to fill his band out, and, you know, he kept harping to me that he needed a keyboard player to have, like, organ and things like that. And, you know, just couldn't afford it, you know, on the way up, you know. And then we ended up uh, getting uh, 44 dates with Chris Stapleton. He start, I'd go to a lot of those shows, and, you know, all of a sudden he's gone from little clubs opening for people to arenas. Uh, opening for this guy you know we were very attuned to what was working for the crowd and what wasn't and we noticed that ain't a road too long was like huge immediately every night people were really reacting to that song and we're like okay you know not to say we got to get 10 of those but we got to have more of that here brent talks about what he was looking to do on this record the main difference was only that we had the opportunity to open for Chris and Morgan Stapleton last year for a half a year. Such generous people, so we're we were up we were playing for venues, you know, twenty thousand cap rooms, and uh, that Shannon. Rainy Day album is such a quiet album. You know, it's more of a thoughtful kind of introverted. You know, to take those songs and try to play them for a twenty thousand seated venue, it was a little intimidating. Although 
you wouldn't think it, but the that record it lends itself to kind of rock a little harder than than the record itself did. Anyway, live that had a lot to do with this this record, uh, Providence Canyon. You know, just that environment of man, I want to get these folks going. You know, it's our job to get them ready for the headliner and so with this record i just want to make sure that i will say i do think that if you took away some of the huge electric guitar if you took away some of the keys and if you took away all the background singing it would probably be still very similar to shine on rainy day i then asked him what music was having an effect on him since this record has such a rockin more groovy feel than the last one Larry John Wilson, that country funk dude from Swainsboro I'd never heard of until the last year, but he had a lot to do with it. Delbert McClinton and Glenn Clark, I didn't know was an Atlantic. They did these sessions from like 71 to 73. I remember the first time I met with Craig Kalmick and Greg Nadell here. I was like trying to be all hip and be like, man, y'all ever heard of this Delbert and Glenn records from 71 to 73? And they're like, yeah, I'm sure we've heard of them. It was Atlantic <laughs> that, that put it out. But it's just this funky country thing. I think Dave and I have probably always been trying to make a country funk album. And we st- I don't think we've accomplished it yet, but it's been fun as hell trying to make it happen. Man, I mean, the way I write is, you know, my dad obviously is from Georgia. But my mom's from Cleveland, Ohio. And so my, my uncles on my dad's side were all country, like traditional country. My uncles on my mama's side were rock and roll. They loved rock and roll, you know, the home of rock and roll. They were into Zeppelin. They were into, again, the Beatles, you know. And I've always just kind of, I loved when my Uncle Brian would come down and play Rocky Raccoon, you know. And that's just what I've always tried to write, like. I had Dave Cobb talk about where he sees that country funk thing coming from. Well, we're both from South Georgia, and, and there's that swampiness to it all. There's always, you know, Tennessee has country, and, and Kentucky has bluegrass, and, you know, I, I just think there's a soul element to Georgia. We have, you know, we're the birthplace of Otis Redding and James Brown and, and, and uh, Little Richard, and, and all this stuff has got so much soul influence, and we, we, we hear the soul in church and everything, too, and I think it's kind of incorporating the soul aspect in the country music. Um, we didn't make a soul record, but we made a funky country record, you know, and I think that's very reflective of you know, geographically where we're from. And I think that's the one thing about his record that separates it from other country records I've worked on. It's just, it just sounds like that swampy, laid-back, southern soul thing. And now I'd like to pause this program and tell you for a minute about what you can expect with the rest of the season of Inside the Album. On this season, we talked to Dashboard Confessional about making a record that pleases both himself and fans, both old and new. I like our old stuff better, and I like moments and songs from our later era of recording. But as a whole body of work, I like everything up through half of Dusk and Summer. Jeff Richmond and the creators of the hit play Mean Girls talk about what goes into developing a mega-hit Broadway play and cast recording. Trying to find out what is that song that you actually want to like sit down and write is tricky and is a challenge, because there's not that much real estate for songs, even though it's a musical. Vance Joy talks creating a follow-up to a successful debut album. And I'm uh, like eating my lunch before breakfast, kind of like getting too far ahead before I'm like focusing on just this one detail of what am I doing, making a song. Pete Wentz of Fall Out Boy talks mentoring nothing nowhere. Like first you find out if you like someone's art. If you do and that's interesting to you, you find out what their basic mission statement as an artist is, and then you see if you can align with that vision. And we also talked to Grandson about crafting his highly politically charged debut EP, the indie rock band Wallows on making a record that sounds like the loss of youth, Jason Mraz on finding a greater truth in music for his latest LP, No, and Brent Cobb on making honest music. Subscribe now and stay tuned for the deepest inside look you will get into how great records are being made today. You can also head to AtlanticPodcast.com for more information on this podcast and Atlantic Records. Now that we know where Brent was coming from on this record, I thought it would be interesting to learn how he writes his songs. You know, it's so much different the way a country song is written from your rock or hip-hop songs these days. And it really remains an anomaly. And hearing his process, it really, really shed a light on why his songs sound the way they sound. It's always hard to say. To me, the songs are still coming from the same well, the same internal well. I don't think of it different when I sit down to write a song. I try not to overthink it at all. If I think if I, if I think about it too damn much, it won't come out the way it's just naturally supposed to come out. And I tend to write just by being influenced by whatever environment I'm Nine times out of ten, I'm probably in a recliner or something. A lot of times when I get off the road or I get through writing all day, I'll get home and pick up the guitar to relax. A lot of times when I'm writing 
by myself, that's, that's how it'll begin. I, I tend to write in chronological order. It'll be whatever the first line is will remain the first line. And the second line, it, it, I don't usually write a chorus first. I tend to go in blank, try to write whatever is in the atmosphere. You know, I don't know what, a lot of times subconsciously, we're, I mean, we're always thinking of something we don't realize we're thinking about, yeah. you know, and I try to let that write whatever is supposed to happen. Then when it happens, a lot of times it'll be surprising and I'll go, man, oh, I need to go get a drink of coffee or I need to get a beer or, you know, oh, I need to do a little tobacco, you know, or whatever it is until, you know, I just get, you would think I'm an insane person. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you were to be a fly on the wall and see me, I'd like pacing the room and I just get excited when I know that the subconscious is starting to write mm-hmm. that whatever song it turns into. I immediately I put it on the iPhone and then I'll send it to my publisher so they can log it. I never write down lyrics. I don't know. I'm, I don't do a whole lot. I don't know. I write it, record it, send it in. When it comes time to do a record, you know, usually there'll be, it seems like there will be a song that I write in the present that will influence the rest of the record. Like on Providence Canyon, it started with, uh, with Ain't a Road Too Long. It was the first song of this record that I wrote for, actually it was for, you know, that Ram campaign. Their campaign was like it seemed like specifically for my life you know so it was long live the storyteller they wanted you know like being gone they wanted to hear about home they wanted to hear about it's like well shit i got that i don't have to i don't have to you know lie about any of that so was, i just wrote what i would have wrote anyway it just so happened that's exactly what they were looking for so this song happened and i loved it so then i was able to dig back into the old catalog and go man this song would be cool with that song you know, and then, oh, that song will be cool with this song. And this song will be, you know, maybe I should write one like this to go with these three songs, you know. Dude, Luke Bryan gave me some of the best advice I've ever gotten when I, before I moved to Nashville even. Or no, it was right when I moved to Nashville. I was like, man, what the hell should I be doing? And he, he goes, you should write your ass off. Just write and write and write and write and write. Because someday you're going to be at a point where you're not going to have time to write. And you're going to be making these records and you're going to need songs. And then you're going to have this deep catalog of all these songs that you've written. And that's what happens. It's like a puzzle then, you know. And then I still, like I said, I'll write, you know, say I have four songs that I know are going to go on the record. And three of those songs are old catalog songs. And I'm looking for this fifth one. And I go, I don't have that song. Well, then I know what kind of song, feel-wise, I should write. Now that we know how he crafts his songs and what it's like when he crafts them for others, what's it like when other people work with him on his music? Co-writing for me, though, was sort of, I mean, it was a little nine-to-five-ish because it was part of my job for, it still is, uh, on Music Row. Yeah, that's what you do. You kind of go in. First of all, there's a place called Music Row in Nashville, for folks who don't know that. That's where all the, you know, all the business happens, where all the, your favorite songs are wrote. It's where all the musicians hang out, all the studios. But it looks like an old neighborhood because that's what it is. It's all these little old houses, you know, from the 40s that are still there, but they're all publishing houses. And... They have rooms in them that used to be someone's bedroom. You go in these rooms and you they're just like this room. They got a couch and chair and somebody's got a computer and you know, you hang out and you drink coffee. You try to keep it as a lot of times it's like walking in and taking your clothes off with a complete stranger, you know. <laughs> you have to try your best to be as personal as you can be with someone you've never met before. Only way that works for me and it works different for everyone else is a lot of times I'll have a half written song. I'll have a verse and a chorus that I'll bring in. I don't care if I don't get stingy with them. It can be somebody that I've never heard of or it doesn't matter. I just I'm better if I have a direction that I'm that I'm certain of tends to be the way you write from i don't know 11 to 6 however long it takes you to finish the song sometimes it's only 45 minutes one person sends it to their publisher and the other person sends it to their publisher and call it a day do it all again the next day when i first signed the deal in 08 i was or in 09 i was uh i wanted to do it as much as i could so i I was writing monday through friday co-writing monday through friday usually doubles i would write in the morning i'd write in the evening and then i'd get home and try to come up with something else to bring in for the next day and I just wanted to write, because it better everybody's odds, too. You know, if uh, if you have two people that are writing, they have publishers. Their publisher's job is to get placement of that song. Better's everybody's odds to get, you know, a cut. So then you're saying you aren't very choosy, though, about who you end up collaborating for your own music? I am now. I have, yeah, Neil Medley is one of the first people I ever wrote, co-wrote with. We wrote a song early on called Tailgate Blues that Luke Bryan wound up recording. It was one of the first cuts I ever had as a songwriter. Um, Jason Sines and I and Bailey Cook, who used to live in New York. I don't know where she lives now. 
we wrote Providence Canyon together. I've written with Jason forever. We have we've had several cuts. Uh, Scotch Taylor, who I wrote solving problems with on the last record, is on Thirty Out Six with me. Uh, my buddy Adam Fisher, um, Adam Hood. Yeah, Adam Fisher is one, like one of my first friends I ever made in Nashville. Adam Hood, you already heard about Adam. We've been writing together forever. He used to write at Carnival. But that's that's sort of my, my main core group of folks. I asked Brent about the qualities he needs to have in a co-writer, though, so that he feels comfortable. And he had a pretty enlightening thought on the subject. Yeah, I think you just have to know someone well enough to not be scared to tell them to fuck off or for them to tell you to fuck off. You know what I mean? Well, the whole... Uh, idea behind the song when the dust settles is probably the whole that whole premise is f off to <laughs> i was mad because I, I wasn't getting any cuts at the time i actually wrote that one with neil medley we weren't getting anything accomplished we couldn't get anybody to record our songs i just had a baby and nobody would uh would work with me and help me out and i, I felt like i was on a sinking ship yeah i was trying to write and be honest i always am and so that song was just like, damn it, I wish y'all get out, get the hell out the way and them put me on the radio one time. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know. Neil is one of my my most trusted uh, co-writers because he can he'll he'll he can like read the hell out of me when I when I come in the room and me him when he comes in it's like oh you didn't get any damn sleep last night did you old boy I'll take the reins on this one today you know that sort of deal. I then wanted to get into how the record's recorded. The vibe on the record with these grooves just sounds like they're having such a good time while they rock out. So I was very curious if it was all done live or piecemeal and how exactly they brought this record to life. Probably took about the same amount of time, about a week to, to create the whole record. The way Dave and I did both of these records, uh, Shine on Rainy Day and this one, there was no pre-production involved with songs. It would I, I would have you know a list of 20 songs that I go... I know these are all good. I don't know exactly because I'm not I'm not a good producer. You know what I mean? And I and I'm I tend to be too close to the songs to really you know go these ten are the ones you know. And, and we, we he doesn't even know that. We'll I'll go in and we'll all sit at a couch in the studio, the whole band, Dave, me, and we'll look at the list. And then like I said, I'll sit in the studio the morning of and I'll play a song. We'll, or I might play two songs, or I might play three, and we'll go, damn, that's the one we got to, we're all feeling that one. So we'll go record it, go sit back at the couch, play in the, or if we may go, man, that second one that I played earlier, let's try that one. And go, he'll go, well, which one do you feel like playing right now? And then I'll play it. It's either in the room or it's not in the room, you know? And if it if it is, Dave or, or the drummer will kind of start coming up with some sort of beat, you know, and it just, whatever's in the room that day. You know, and Dave's real good at that because I don't know he tends to produce the way that I write. Like I was saying earlier, I'll, I tend to write whatever, you know, it's impulsive writing. And he's that way in the studio. It's not overthought. It's not thought out beforehand. It's, oh, man, this has got to happen like this. He, and he likes a first impression yes. of a song. You know, he doesn't like to, you don't send a, a whole demo that's been, you know, produced pretty much. With Dave, it's all live. Uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm I'm usually sitting in the room with uh, which is you know RCA Studio A in Nashville. It's a huge room, the old Havelina. It's where Elvis Presley used to practice karate. Yeah, we're it's usually me, Dave will be sit. We're kind of in a circle, sort of. Uh, Dave will be sitting, you know, across from me on an acoustic guitar. I have my acoustic guitar. Mike, my guitar player, who played on this record, will be on the other side of me across the room. Bass player will be in the same room. We're, we're all in a little bit of a circle, and then we'll have the drummer in a booth, drum booth. And I tend to, of course, we have the ability to go back and overdub whatever we need to. I'm one take, though. The first take, you better be micing me because I, I'll think too much about it after that, and I can't ever nail it again. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, and I, and I sing different when I play. If I'm trying to sing without a guitar in my hand, I don't. I tend to, I can't, I don't know, I don't land my words the way that I that I would if I'm actually playing it. it a lot of the overdubbing dubbing on this record particularly tends to be like Mike going back and putting a harmony guitar part over what he just played. That's Or the other stuff is, you know, putting a shaker on there or putting a tambourine on there. The background harmonies are over, they're added later. That's usually about it, though. Well, this one was broken up because we were touring so much. I would say all in all, it probably took about the same amount of time, about a week to, to create the whole record. This is Dave's side to how the record was made and why he chooses to work this way. 
I just think pre-production is evil. You know, people work so hard in pre-production and, and they work out a bass part or a drum part or, you know, a vocal background part. And by the time you get in the studio, you've forgotten half the stuff and you've got to go listen back to the rehearsal tapes. And then you've missed the magic. You've missed the first time you got something right or the first time you've written a riff riff you've missed the magic and by not doing pre-production have tape rolling the whole time you capture it the first time it's most inspired and that's whether you develop it later or not you know you can you can take the best early part and splice it into the developed part later so you never miss the heart i feel like you know making recording a process is what i don't like about record making that's why people go oh my god you got to see a live it's so much better live you know why not treat recording you know like live show in a lot of ways and, and capture all the parts in between and, and have it to work from, you know? The moment we start working out stuff, tape is rolling. It never stops rolling. Well, you know, I was a huge Beatles and Stones fans, and, you know, I think the Beatles kind of did the same thing. They had tape rolling the whole time, and you can, you can see how a song develops from the anthologies, from take one to take 37 or whatever it is. And I just treat it like that, you know? It's, uh, it's not a hard thing to do to press record. And by the time, by having record all, going all the time, Nobody has red light fever when it actually is recording. So I think that loses that as well, you know? I, I think people would laugh if they saw my recording process. It's pretty basic, you know? It's, you know, it's so simple. I mean, you know, as far as recording, getting dorky on it, you know, a lot of records now, people have, you know, 30 inputs going in, you know, multiple mics on drums, and multiple mics on, you know, vocals and guitars and keyboards and this and that. Yeah, I think Brent's record, most of it's about 10 tracks and maybe even less. You know, the drums are one track. So there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on. And it's only because it doesn't have to be complicated when the players are really good. I mean, the drummer and the bass player and, and, and Brent and his guitar player and myself and he's got Charlie Worsham to play on. They're, they're all pretty knowledgeable players, so it's, it's it's not hard to record them. You could pretty much put up anything. You put a tin can, it'll probably sound pretty good. So I feel like in a lot of ways, the way we do these records is cheating, and it makes it really easy instead of making things complicated. It makes the art more the forefront and the technic technical aspect kind of to, to the back, you know. And usually there's three mics predominantly on the drums, an overhead, a, you know, and a snare drum and a kick drum. And that's, you know, a lot of times I may track it to three tracks and then I'll just sum it down to one track because for some reason it's easier to mix-wise think about drums as opposed to, you know, multiple drums. I think I probably mix the whole record in about two days because, you know, when we're tracking it, we're kind of mixing as we go along. I mean, all the reverbs and effects and you know, if we do any compression at all, it's committed. So it's really at, at, at mix time. Very, you should probably turn that up or turn that down. It's not. It's not a complicated process. The mix. It's very simple. I then asked Mike Harris about how he sees the process go down. I never got sent demos. Never like any like. Here's an idea of what we're going to be working on tomorrow, kind of thing. Like I'm pretty sure it's like an unspoken or maybe even spoken thing that Dave doesn't want you to like have any preconceived notions of like what that tune is going to sound like by the time we lay it to tape. Dave's gonna like sit down with you and like kind of break your heart a little bit every now and then as a writer. You know, like somebody somebody like Brent is great because Brent has great trust with Dave, you know, like obviously they're like mildly related, third cousins once removed. Yeah, like they they have a great working relationship and like Brent is um has his own opinions but also like really trusts Dave's Dave's batting a thousand. You know what I mean? Like he can't seem to make a record that I don't want to listen to. So even as a player coming in, I'm kind of like, "Yes, sir." Like, <laughs> I got it. I trust you. So, um, yeah, like, oh, it's definitely a hang a lot of the time. You know, like, Dave likes to start after lunch because there's no real sense to me, at, you know, to anybody. There's nobody should ever be making a record before lunch. Brent will get into an idea in one corner of the room, and, like, you're sitting there next to Dave and – Brian Allen, who's like one of the most tremendous bass players to ever walk the face of the earth, and Chris Powell, who like, you know, Chris is playing with Brandy Carlisle right now, but I think he does like basically every session that Dave does at RCA. And yeah, just like a marvelous musician, just so much music to be around, which is already intimidating. But then like Brent gets into a song and like Dave's like, okay, that bridge is actually a chorus. You should write a new bridge really quick here's the order guys let's play through this twice and then like go track it live and like 
you know, like I'm not in there every day with Brian and Chris and Dave and like kind of trying to be like, hey, uh, I'm really happy to be here. You know, yeah, it's it's just really fast paced. And um, you don't want to feel like you're sandbagging those guys because they they have a great groove going on. And so like to get to come in and be a part of it feels very special. And then come in and then like every day there was like, all right, we we're going to hang for like 45 minutes and just start making some jokes. And uh, probably pour a couple of drinks, too. Yeah, then, then there's that, like, circle thing happening. You know, Brian Allen's got his little mini Taylor acoustic bass, and a couple of acoustic guitars get passed around, and, like, Dave's writing a, a hook or a riff and kind of tossing it back and forth with me, and we're trying to get the form right. On one side of the live room, there's, like, the couches, and there's, like, a record player and a bunch of great records and we might like even spin a record to get a reference like dude listen to this vibe right here like what if we could get like that kind of vibe going and um yeah then you just move over to the other side of the live room and everybody's kind of in a circle and it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty great way to make a record a popular line for a few days in the in the studio was what would skinner do which like those guys dug country they did a Jimmy Rogers tune, you know, like, and they're as Southern as Southern gets. But uh, there was this Strat that Dave had in the studio. I think he was, like, thinking about buying it and had, like, grabbed it from Carter Vintage Guitars. Just, like, so lucky to live in a town with a guitar shop like Carter. It's one of the most amazing places I've ever been. Unreal. So there was this 55 Strat. And I think that, like, I know I played it, and I know Dave played it, and Charlie Warsham played the same guitar. So, like, all three of the guys that did guitar on this record played this guitar at different times. But it was a 55 uh, overspray. It had, like, this weird, like, burgundy refinish on it. But it was just, it was right. You know what I mean? It was an amazing guitar. Hitting the, like, you know when you do the middle and bridge pickup and you get that kind of quack sound it's like steve gaines and ed king and in, in skinnard like that strat sound that was one of my favorite like go-to's for just like the way some of these like groovy groovier tunes like if i don't see you and 30 six like there's like a boogie thing happening there and uh that's that's one of my favorite sounds to go to for that. I used to kind of hate that guitar sound, and now like maybe I'm getting closer to dad rock. I don't know. <laughs> like I just I'm way into it. While we were on the subject of guitars, I wanted to get into a little bit. You know, one of the things that makes this record so cool is the guitar tones are just totally outside the bounds of what you're normally hearing in country music. So I wanted to dig a little bit deeper on that with Brent, and he had a great story to tell. I have a uh, 1942. Martin, what is it? Gosh, I'm, I've been playing this Gibson now. Uh, triple alt, single alt 17, 1942 Martin, single alt. And it's my favorite guitar to write with, but it's also, if, especially if we're doing like a softer, like Laureen or something, to play that, that just kind of lends itself to, to the whole tone. I've been playing a... Gosh, what is, what is it? I can't. I can't remember. I'm not. I don't know gear like I should. I just pick up a guitar and go. Damn, that one feels right. It's actually Dave gave me that Martin that I was talking about. This was in. That's like, a hell of a guitar. Oh man, yeah. This was in probably 20. He had just moved to Nashville, so it's probably like 2011 or 12. And he was. Uh, Who's he, he was recording Lucette. I went and wrote like two or three songs that we wound up recording for her record. I And I had written that day on that guitar because, you know, Dave's got a ton of guitars. And I picked that one up and I loved the tone of that guitar that day. Well, that's what we recorded with. And then at the end of the session, I just, he knew how much I loved it. And he's like, I tell you what, he played a bunch of old Loretta Lynn songs. He said, if you'll go home tonight and take that guitar with you and you write a song like one of these old songs for this record, you can have that damn guitar. I went to the house and I wrote like 25 songs. <laughs> probably, <laughs> not, heard that probably, probably not that many. And I could not write one that I that felt like, like the pure version of one of those songs. So I called him the next day and was like, man, I wrote a bunch of songs. None of them are like that. I'll be by with the guitar later and give it to him. He was like, man, happy birthday. He gave me that damn guitar. That was before Dave was, was rolling like Dave is rolling now. You know, he's just a generous dude. Since Mike's more of a gearhead, I had him talk a little bit about the guitars on the record, particularly the phaser sound you hear throughout the record. Oh, man, <laughs> the phaser is like, that. it's a thing. It's <laughs> a thing. Dude, a guy came up to me at the show last night. Uh, he teaches guitar at NYU. And he was like, bro, I got to tell you, like, 
we saw you guys play in Sweden and like we're here tonight, but like I'm such a guitar nerd and I like had to write a song with Phaser in it after seeing you guys. Like, that <laughs> rules so That's hard. Because I think the Phase 90 is just like the best $50 uh, any guitar player could ever spend. Well, uh, dude, when, yeah. I, when I got into playing, not on the record, but when I was touring with Brent right after his, around the time the first record came out, I didn't even know him when he had made that record and i called up dave i was like man the phaser is such a big part of the sound and like i've just got like a basic off the rack like not a script mod not mm -hmm. like a any cool one just a basic phase 90 and i want to make sure i'm getting it right and he's like dude that's exactly what i use in the studio like <laughs> so, not like a vintage one not nothing like it's whaling in a box you I, know I, I i brought in a Two of my own amps because, you know, when I look at, like, my roster, I'm like, okay, Dave's got most of this covered. Let me see if I can, like, impress Dave, you know, with, like, one of the best, like, curated amp and guitar collections. And uh, one of my amps ended up making it on a few of the tracks, uh, a 65 non-reverb Princeton. I basically brought in, like, the Mike Campbell rig. Like, I brought in the 65 non-reverb Princeton and a, and a 57 narrow panel deluxe. And uh, he he didn't like my deluxe. My Princeton's got that Celestian. Uh, it's got a Celestian 12 inch in it, mm. and uh, it's super clean. But Tremolo's great on it. But the the deluxe has got the OG Jensen in it, mm. you know. And Dave was like, "Oh, you gotta have a Celestian in there. Here, try my tweet amp. It's got a Celestian in it, and it it does sound great." So like, <laughs> probably my favorite amp to track over with Dave is uh, he's got a I think it's an old Tweed Vibrolux. Man screaming with the celestial blue in it i would i would bring a couple of guitars in like i brought in like my gold top les paul but like most of the time if i'm grabbing guitars like he's got a great esquire there's just a ruler um one of my favorite parts on the record is the the solo stuff on uh ain't a road too long and that's an amazing 335 that he's got with PAFs in it. I had I, I brought in a buddy's guitar that had the the palm benders on it because like there's a lot of pedal steel mm -hmm. on the record, but it's not pedal steel. I play guitar tuned in open E, E B E G sharp B E. That's a common tuning. Yeah, yeah. yeah like Dwayne Allman. I think he would play in open D, but it's the same spacing. One five one three five one. Gotcha. Derek Trucks plays in open E, uh Blake Mills plays an open C sharp, but it's the same spacing. Yeah, the the pedal steel sound is a lot of fun. I used to do that in an in an old band I was in, and I I totally stole this from Scotty Murray. Scotty Murray's like a a guitar hero for me, and Scotty plays with Anderson East. And um, I saw Scotty. It was the first show I ever played in New York. He was playing with Jesse Balin at the time at pianos, and he had this SG with a Bigsby palm bender on it. So it's a it's like levers. And it's on the G and B string, or G sharp and B string in open E. And so the G sharp bends up a half step, and the B bends up a whole step. But when you put a slide on your left hand, and you kind of work those benders, you get, like, all the classic pedal steel licks. So, like, I, you know, I know I'm doing my job right if somebody comes up and is like, hey, where was the pedal steel at? You know what I mean? I'm like, yes, I got you. But it's, like, it's it's kind of, like, a bear it's so hard to keep it in tune our keyboard player was like well that's probably like the trait that makes it most like a pedal steel <laughs> <laughs> that's good speaking of that keyboard player he's talking about phil towns there and i wanted to hear from him about his contribution to the record yeah i thought i was gonna play on you know maybe like two or three songs and then dave just kept playing kept playing the record he's like you want to play on this you want to play on this you want to play on this so i think he ended up playing on like six or seven songs on the record or something but uh yeah i just happened to come in the record was uh kind of done and uh, I just happened to run into Dave and then ended up putting my all my keyboard parts on it at the, the latter half of it. So, yeah, I kind of kind of came in on the kind of did it backwards this time. Usually I'm in on on with everybody else. But I couldn't let this podcast finish up without one last great story from Brent. Here he tells the story of the song King of Alabama. Man, 
All right, here is the king of Alabama. I think there are many people worthy of the crown. There have been a lot of great people come out of that state, you know, great artists. Uh, but in my humble opinion, uh, in my time, this guy Wayne Mills. Wayne Mills, this is why. Wayne Mills, uh, A, he played for Crimson Tide. I mean, he played for Alabama football. He was a honky-tonk hero, man. This dude... Jamie Johnson used to open shows for Wayne Mills. Blake Shelton opened shows for Wayne Mills. His last record he ever put out before he died was called The Last Honky Tonk, which is amazing. It's a great record. Uh, my buddy Rowdy produced it, who Dave introduced us to. You should research Rowdy, too. Anyway, um, so Wayne Mills, uh, one night, the night of the George Jones tribute show, he and a few folks are hanging out. They all go to this bar afterwards. This is in 20. 13, 14, or somewhere around there. They all go to hang out at these bars. Uh, this one bar, the Pit and Barrel down on Broadway. They're all hanging out, smoking cigarettes. Everybody decides to leave except Wayne, because Wayne is going to be the house band in residency at this bar when it opens the next day is the grand opening. He lights a cigarette up. The owner, who was all one of our mutual acquaintances, we all knew the guy, he gets mad at Wayne for smoking in the bar. And knowing Wayne, Wayne was about a six-foot-four fella. And he probably stands up and he's like, all your famous friends are gone now. I can't smoke in the bar. And the guy goes, no, man. And so Wayne probably was like, well, how about I kick your ass then? <laughs> and this guy goes and gets a damn pistol and shoots Wayne twice in the head. And it kills him. Wayne was on his way out of the door. I mean, the, the police report shows that he was drugged back in. So he was probably going to fucking leave. And this guy kills him. Well... Wayne introduced me to a lot of people in town. I wouldn't know a quarter of the people that I know now had it not been for Wayne Mills. He left behind a seven-year-old son oh, and his wife. Two days after it happened, my wife was pregnant with our first child, and so I'm thinking about his son. I just couldn't imagine his son growing up without a father. It just floors me. And uh, I could barely write it, but I started it that night. And then I have this other buddy of mine who's from Alabama. His name's Adam Hood, who's a, also a great writer, a great artist. He's about to put out a record. He's one of my best friends. Adam knew Wayne for a long time. They had the same circuits that they traveled, both being from Alabama. Adam Hood would go, when he would imitate Wayne, he'd go, I'm Wayne Mills, I'm the King of Alabama, by God, roll tide. And so that's where the title King of Alabama came from. But there had to be a song written about this guy. And... uh for my reasoning for his son to grow up and know that this is who your daddy was, you know what I mean? And not that you didn't know, but just to make sure you're well aware of who the man your dad was, this is him. And we were able to actually add his son as a co-writer to the King of Alabama. So any little bit that the song makes, it'll go in, portion of it will go into Wayne's old publishing Company. Oh, that's so rad. It's badass, man. But the song would have never been wrote. We finished it this year, me and Adam Hood did, together. And uh, it would have never been written without his son. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please share it on social media. To hear other episodes and more of Atlantic's podcasts, head to AtlanticPodcast.com. Brent Cobb's Providence Canyon is out now. Thanks, and tune in next time.